One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Bridget Phillips and the Shadow Education Secretary. And again, it's another brand new episode, as is now the norm. Oh man, I love making this podcast. It's so much fun. What a privilege to be. I mean, I've always loved it, as you as you know, if you listen regularly. And if this is your first time, welcome. Um, what a great thing to be able to do, to be able to interview politicians over the course of an hour. Ask them anything I want and... Um, Pick the brains of people who either do run the country or, or may run the country or have run the country. Um, it's fantastic. I don't. I genuinely. I've always loved podcasts as a listener and as a maker of them. And I think they're just a really good conversation is one of the most immersive, entertaining things that you can be involved in or listen back to. Um, and the sort of podcasts I really seek out are long form interviews. I just love them. And and making this. It's such a joy. And this conversation with Bridget Phillipson is fantastic because to go about a whole range of things, and particularly about what Labour would do if they win, and uh, the, the mood around the party and the country at the moment, and the sense that uh, the country is fed up, but are they ready to vote Labour, and what Labour's going to do for education. And, and Bridget is also a mother whose kids are going through school, and the pressures on being a parent in 2024, just a whole range of things. And, and just what her personality's like, and what it's like being a politician, a front bench one, going into an election um, that will be so fraught, if you are a bit shy and if um, you're in politics to change things, but not necessarily be um, uh, someone who wants the attention all the time, what that feels like. And we talk about um, her background and her upbringing and the effect on her, and we talk about class. Um, it's just fantastic. And um, I'm not just saying that because... Uh, I, I always enjoy making the show, but it, it just really, just a brilliant conversation with a really talented person is uh, is something that I think we all enjoy. So uh, this is a, um, uh, well, it's a, it's a brand new episode, as I've already said. <laughs> can tell I'm a bit rusty getting back into this after everything, but it's just great to be back. So I will shut up and um, let's all enjoy a, a great chat with Bridget Phillipson. Bridget. Uh, how does it feel to be touted as as one of the stars of the Labour Party um, and, and, you know, getting lots of attention and, and newspaper pieces and, and, and big keynote speeches just a few years after being on the back benches under Jeremy Corbyn and probably wondering whether A, Labour would ever be in a position to win an election again and B, whether you'd probably chosen the right career? Yeah, hi, Matt. Um, certainly things have changed a lot since 2019, um, it's fair to say, and... You know, we've made remarkable progress. I have to—I do find it all rather peculiar on a personal level. Um, for all, you know, as a politician, you know you're a public figure. Part of me has always found found it uncomfortable, I suppose, talking about myself. I've done more of it recently because I think it's helpful for people to understand where I'm from, what I'm about, how that shaped my politics. 
but I've always been quite a reserved person and I find it a bit odd to be talking so openly, but I think it, it does shed light on what I would want to do if I had the chance to be Education Secretary in the Labour government. You know, you've hit upon something there that I think Labour struggles with, that the country struggles with, is our relationship with class. And whilst on the one hand, people know that Britain is a very unequal society and that um, millions of people come from working class backgrounds, even working class people themselves can only tolerate other working class people talking about being working class for a certain amount of time. Yeah, and I think with, the, you know, right across the shadow cabinet, there are many of us that have been, you know, talked in, in some detail about our background, uh, our class background, how that shaped us. I mean, Kia in particular, um, you know, I, I get the impression that he's also someone that doesn't always find it massively comfortable talking about where he's from, but it's necessary to do it because I think people do want do want to understand who you are as a person. Yes, and that's a nice thing, isn't it, is that the individual does matter in a democracy, whether it's your constituents or or if you're privileged enough to be part of the next government. The public want to know about the things that are driving you. In a way, they want to like you. I think that's what it is, is that people's default position is they want to find something in other people, particularly those who govern us, that actually they've got something in common with or that they, that they like. Yeah, and as a politician, you have to try to understand how people approach their views, the world, what shapes them. And that does require you to have a have a degree of empathy, to want to listen, to want to understand, but also to persuade, because the most effective politicians have been those that have been persuasive in the arguments they're making, not trying to kind of batter people around the heads with with a dogmatic approach. And you know, I've been an MP now for 14 years and you change as a politician in that time and you know, the way that you view the world, you, sh- you shouldn't remain kind of fixed and wedded to one particular worldview. And you do have to move with the times. You, you, you hold true to your values, but you have to think about the best responses and, and what the right way of doing things now. And, you know, the challenges that we would face if Labour wins the next election this year would be very, very different to the last time we won from opposition in 1997. The country is so very different in lots of ways and you have to keep pace with that change and where Labour is effective is when we make an argument about the future. You're a fascinating case because I remember Tony Blair saying that one of the reasons why in 1997 they were so ready, apart from the economic um, outlook that the country faced in 1997, that the part of the reason why New Labour was so effective wasn't just the talent they had, but that they'd been around a long time. Labour had been in opposition for a long time. And those Labour MPs at the heart of that project had been able to see the things that work and don't. And they'd had all that thinking time and all that learning time, making a few mistakes, figuring out who they were as politicians. Even though you're treated as a newcomer, partly because of your age and partly because you weren't on the front bench during the Corbyn years, you've been an MP for 14 years uh, later this year. In a way, you're you're in not the perfect zone because you're still relatively young for an MP, but you've got a a wealth of experience inside Parliament and seeing the Labour Party, frankly, fail a lot that you now bring to to this. Do Do you feel in a way that, you know, given the churn of politics and everything, that actually you're in a really special position having that level of experience at your age? It does make a difference to me. I think having been in Parliament for almost 14 years, I've got a sense of how things work, how to get things done, a clearer sense in my own mind about the challenges we face as a country, particularly around education and how we might seek to change that. And while at one level, you know, we've we've been in opposition for 14 years, 
and that's a long time to reflect on the challenges we face. We've had to make an awful lot of progress since 2019. We've had to condense, you know, those, you know, a, a rapid amount of change. And full credit to Keir Starmer for the turnaround he's delivered in the Labour Party that we're looking outwards to the country. You know, if you'd said to me on the 13th of December 2019 that we would be winning by-elections, that there was a prospect that we might secure a Labour government, I remember reflecting on the 13th of December that, you know, it was a long way back and I was not at all convinced that we could win again. Now, we've still got a big job of work to do. We've still got to persuade the country this year in a general election, but we have made remarkable progress in such a short space of time. And I think for me, the benefit that I've had in being education, Shadow Education Secretary now for, for over two years is I've you know, had, a, had a good period of time to reflect on what needs to change, a good period of time to reflect on how we would make that change happen if we were to win. And part of, for me, what's been really helpful is to have spoken to those who were around in that pre-97 period, who had a similar period of time to think about the challenges, David Blunkett being uh, the most obvious example. I've spent a lot of time speaking to David about how he managed that transition from opposition into government, what he would do differently if he had his time over, what worked well. That's not because, you know, I'm, I'm uh, complacent about the challenge we face in winning the election. We've still got to persuade people. We've got, we've got to fight for every vote. But if we do win, we've got to be ready to go, ready to hit the ground running and demonstrate to people that actually the change that they voted for is meaningful and the country will, is getting better. Uh, those of us involved in in politics of our generation can remember those five uh, new Labour pledges in 1997, <laughs> just ingrained on you as a result of the constant repetition of them. But thinking about what Labour's five, if it is five big ones that go into the next election, the emphasis in 1997 was basically on cutting class sizes and, and getting more teachers. And that again, the same in the NHS about building capacity and more doctors, more, more nurses. Labour then ended up being more radical. You know, academies weren't part of the offer in 1997. And then the Tory government built on those with things like free schools. Is the next Labour government, if you are the next education section, Labour do win the next election, as well as investing and, and getting class sizes down and things like that, are there more creative things that the, the next Labour government would do? Yeah, and I think it's important, given the lack of faith and trust people have in politics right now, to be clear about where we're setting where we're setting out commitments that we're absolutely confident that we can deliver on them. I think that is absolutely crucial to trust in politics at the moment. And alongside that, you're right that the five pledges that Labour made going into 97 were relatively modest at one at one level. But alongside that, a major programme of reform that transformed public services, that lifted children out of poverty, that rebuilt schools, you know, there was so, so much the priority, the big priority for me if we were to win and the big area I think we need to address as a country is early years education and childcare. That's the part of the system that just isn't working, both for parents who were struggling to get to work, to make everything stack up, but also for children who are not getting the start in life that they deserve. And I think that's where government can come in to give people more opportunities, to give people freedom. And I think that's an argument that we should embrace from the left, that the Tories have allowed that language to be captured by the right. Whereas for me, my politics has always been about the freedom and opportunities that government can shape and enable. It's not about denying people the opportunity. It's about recognising that all too often people's circumstances, the family that they're born into, the town they're from, denies them the chances that they should have. And government has a role in setting people free. 
obviously the last Labour government, if you talk about early years and childcare, we talk about Sure Start, something that was um, uh, abolished by the coalition government. Is it that you're thinking about something like Sure Start? Do you just restart Sure Start, or would you would you have to give it a different name? I mean, the lessons of Sure Start in terms of the impact that it had. You know, you look at the fall in hospital admissions, for example, that um, has been evidenced. The obvious benefit that comes of services working together around a family. I mean, the evidence of, of, about all of that is clearer now than it, than it was then. But again, you know, time has moved on. The world has changed. You wouldn't simply want to just recreate what you did in the early 2000s. We're a different country. But the principle of making sure that families are well supported, especially when their children are very young, is a principle that, you know, all of the evidence backs up. But we do face, you know, very constrained um Public set of public finances. The economy is in a terrible mess, far worse than it was in 1997. And that will mean we'll face some pretty tough choices about what we can and can't do. But absolutely, more support for families when children are younger, both in terms of childcare and early education, but also better connection between those services, whether it's with health visitors, you know, all kinds of early intervention and support. Absolutely, that has to be a central part of what we would want to do from government. One of the most exciting things you've talked about and that Keir Starmer's talked about, is this idea of oracy. And it's about not just giving kids a good education and good grades, but actually the verbal ability to effectively advocate for themselves, for being impressive, to have the sort of confidence that kids who go to private schools have. I don't think I've ever heard a political party talk about class in such a good way, as in not as a, a chip on your shoulder, but as that specific part of it is like a problem to be solved. And obviously some... Lots of working class kids do have the confidence and, and, and are able to advocate for themselves. Um, I think that's one of the most perceptive things that any politicians have ever struck upon. So where did that idea come from? So as part of the mission that we set out, that Kia set out about around breaking down the barriers to opportunity, we looked at a range of different areas that for priority, to prioritise. There's an awful lot in that mission document around what we would want to do from government. But as you say, a key part of that in how we break down those barriers is making sure that people, young people, have got the communication skills, the resilience and the confidence to express themselves. Now, we've obviously been involved in quite a lively discussion with the private schools lobby recently about our plans to um, end the tax breaks that they enjoy. But what I would say in their favour and why I know some parents will choose private schools is because of the confidence in terms of speaking skills, communication, and much more besides. Parents really prize that. They really value it. And that's why many parents will choose private schools for their children and the breadth in terms of music and sport and that range of opportunities. I want that for all children. Uh, and I want that for all children in state schools because that is, after all, where the vast majority of children will go to school. I've seen some really good examples of schools that do it well, but we need to go beyond that and make sure that all young people get those opportunities. And would that, would effectively you put it on the curriculum? Would there be an oracy hour? It's about embedding it through the curriculum. So rather than it just being a standalone part of what our young people do, the same is true of digital skills. It's about how, you know, we need a greater focus on that, how you embed that through the work that goes on within a school day to day. And there is also a need alongside that, I think, to, to address early language for children as well. We've got a really big problem, especially coming out of the pandemic around communication skills for our youngest children so part of what we set out there is that when children arrive at primary school we want staff to be supported to intervene as quickly as possible to make sure that children are able to speak properly clearly and communicate because unless you unless you've got that 
you can't access the rest of what is going on within school. And there's huge pressure on specialist services at the moment. And that's, I think, one area where a relatively small amount of money in terms of this um, early language intervention would make an enormous difference uh, to children's life chances. What about the way schools are organised and governed? You know, I mentioned academies earlier and then free schools. You and I both went to state faith schools that, and what they have often is is an ethos and, and you really feel that with academies and um, obviously schools that aren't academies can do that but there was a lot of opposition to academies on the left and, and still is. What's your view of them? Is it is it that they are positive things that you would want to see all schools become academies or do, do still comprehensives that aren't academies have their place? For me it's about what goes on within the school not the name above the door and as you say I went to a um, I went to a Catholic uh, comprehensive that had a really, a really big and important focus on the value of each and every one of us, that we all had worth, that we all had something to offer, that we all had something to contribute. And that is why, you know, many faith schools are so popular amongst parents. Of course, non-faith schools absolutely deliver that too, but parents do do really prize that and they, they, they believe it's important. And I believe it's important that all children feel that they've got a place, that they can thrive, and they can find something that they enjoy, that they're good at, that they've got a contribution to make. But for me, it's about less of a focus on on the structures around all of that, but a focus on the standards within all of our schools. And I think the challenges across all of our state schools at the moment are pretty much the same wherever you go. The need for reform of the system for children with special educational needs and disabilities, the really big recruitment and retention crisis that we're seeing, especially around teaching and also the mental health pressures that our young people are under. They are facing some really big challenges around mental health, especially after the pandemic. And that's why we would use that money that we would raise through ending the tax breaks that private schools enjoy to put that into more support for our young people. I just think that young people need more help around their mental health more than private schools deserve tax breaks. And that's just a straightforward political choice. And, and when you're dealing with the private schools lobby, obviously anyone enjoying a tax break doesn't want to lose it. Um, so that they'll, they'll be against the policy in that regard. But do you get the sense that actually, apart from that, or even within that, some of them understand that the tax break has to end or that they're open to dealing with Labour on, on other issues? Yeah, absolutely. Many struggle to defend it. I mean, I have spoken with you know, private school heads, with the, with the private schools lobby, perfectly cordial conversations. And, you know, they want to talk about the wider work that they do in terms of collaborating with state schools. Absolutely. And, you know, they can continue to do that. I would absolutely welcome that. I mean, privately, they've said some slightly more choice things about about me. But, you know, I can I can live with that. I've been called worse things in my life uh, than Chippy. But I think it does. It does to speak to a certain sense of entitlement that some of these schools have. And, you know, parents have absolutely every right to choose where they send their children to school. But my focus is on making sure that in our state schools, they've got the resources that they need to allow children to thrive. It's such a risk, isn't it, when, you know, it comes back to something we talked about at the start, when you've got yourself, Keir Starmer, West Street and Angela Rain, you know, people with uh, proud working class backgrounds. Talking about it publicly, is there a risk sometimes that even just by having this conversation about who, you know, where do you raise the money instead of putting another penny on income tax, you find it by ending a tax break for private schools? that even working class people sometimes go, ah, this feels like the politics of envy or it feels like class war. And that's something that you have to handle quite delicately. You, you do. And also you have to respect parents' rights in terms of where they choose to educate their children. And I would never criticise 
parents for seeking to do what's right by their children. They want the best for their children. I want the best for children right across our country. That that will be my responsibility if Labour were to win the election. But it is just, for me, a straightforward argument about how we prioritise spending and investment. And there are some tough choices. You know, there will be tough choices in the years to come if Labour wins. The public finances are in a mess. We need to find ways of investing money into state schools. And I believe some of the most aspirational, ambitious people that I've ever met are from working class backgrounds and they want their kids to get on in life. They want them to have every chance to succeed. But there's no way that they could afford a private school. I mean, the average, you know, an average place, £16,500 a year. That is more than some people in my constituency would earn in a year. I mean, that is that is a large amount of money. And over the years, private schools have put up their fees year on year, way beyond inflation. And they're increasingly pri- you know, pricing themselves out of the market for middle class parents. You know, back when I was at school, I knew people that went to private school. Their parents didn't earn loads of money, but they were able to afford to send their children to private school. Those days are pretty much gone. You mentioned David Blunkett earlier and, and, and uh, understandably asking him for advice. Because one thing that fascinates people from the outside is who are the voices around Labour at the moment? And specifically, people wonder about Keir Starmer. They go, has he been captured by the Blairites? Are they old left? You know, is Ed Miliband in his ear or is Tony Blair in his ear or or both? Do you get a sense from inside the shadow cabinet uh, of where Keir Starmer is on that on that on that Labour scale? Is he is he new Labour? Is he old Labour? Is he something else? He's his own person. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how times have changed and and the world has moved on. I mean, 1997 was a very long time ago. Um, Great, though. Well, it was. I mean, I I was at school. I was at school back in 1997. Um, And it was. It was an hopeful, optimistic time where things did improve. But it took us time. I think Kia and and I'm the same. We listen to people that have got good advice to offer that have been there before. And you want to listen to their reflections because, you know, if we win the election, we will make mistakes. Every government makes mistakes. But if you can think ahead about what the potential pitfalls are and, you you know, you're putting yourself in better stead to to manage that. One thing that, that Labour are doing at the moment is saying, you know, it's not 1997. We don't have the same economic outlook. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be tough. Is that just managing expectations so that if elected, you can overachieve in your first term? Or should we really prepare ourselves for things to not change very much? I genuinely believe the challenge that we would face if we were to win later this year is a bigger one in many ways than 97. When, yes, absolutely, the economic outlook is worse. There's, you know, we've just tipped into a recession last week, so there's no growth to speak of. It wasn't great in 97, but better than it is now. And alongside that, I think there is just such a sense in the country that really nothing's working, you know, whether it's... You know, you contact the police and people don't get a response. The, the fact you can't get a GP appointment. Um, our schools, the condition in terms of rack and so many of them, you know, literally falling down. That's enormous. And we have to be realistic about the time it will take to put all of that right. And and I, I, re- I do understand the sense of expectation that people have. But if you've had 14 years of one party with one way of doing things, and all of the problems that have built up and developed in that time, it will take us time to make improvements. There are things that we can do quickly. And, you know, what I've been looking at is, you know, what are the things if we were to win an education that we could get on and do on day one in the first week, the first hundred days. But then alongside that, 
there are areas where it will take us time. It will take us longer to make the changes that people want to see. And the most obvious area would be around support for children with special educational needs and disabilities. I mean, enormous challenges and problems that are there at the moment. There are things we can do quickly to make that better, but some of it will just take time because it is just such a mess. Is there a danger in in effectively being upfront and honest with people and saying that it takes time, even though people know this, that, that actually you, you might be dampening the hope and some of the adrenaline that sometimes political parties need to carry them into office? And that if you maybe were a bit more optimistic in, in the way that you, you framed things, that um, might be more likely to win. It's a tough one because... You know, when you when you speak to voters across the country, I'm, I'm out campaigning all the time right across the country. People do want change. There is a real mood and appetite for change. But they just feel so burnt by politics in recent years. And they want the sense that, well, there's a feeling that, you know, can politicians really fix this? It's got so bad in so many places that there is a real degree of scepticism, cynicism about how, whether politicians can actually fix it. So we've got a job to do in terms of making clear that government can be a force for good in people's lives and demonstrating if they vote Labour, here is the change that comes. And yes, we do have to be optimistic about how we can make that happen. But alongside that, I think if we weren't realistic about the time it will take and about some of the tough choices ahead, I just don't think people would buy it because they see what's going on around them. They know how hard it is. People you know, struggling to feed their families, get a GP appointment, see an NHS dentist. They see that day to day. And I think they do want a sense of realism but also a plan around how we can make things better. And that's why when we've been setting out policy, it has been really focused on those practical changes, those day-to-day changes that people want to see, like the ability to you know, get an NHS dentist, for example. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're clearly highly driven and, uh, you know, not just obviously highly intelligent given given the fact that you got to Oxford and, and, and especially coming from the area that you came from and the economic circumstances is... Um, some might even say miraculous. But you've got that drive um, that a lot of people have when they've they've had to do so much for themselves and, and haven't had the, the privilege to to use as a pedestal to get them into parliament or, or you know the front bench or uh, you know from your perspective hopefully to government. Do you think in a way having that background is, is not a form of economic privilege, but in, in a way does give you more of a drive and more of a a stamina to succeed through difficult times. I think it does. And I, I, I know I've been really lucky in many ways in my life. There is a degree to which you can make your own luck. I worked really hard at school. I was focused, determined. But that's not enough. For two, you know, that, that isn't always enough. And that's the fundamental unfairness, the inequality that is still there within our society and that I'm determined to fight. You do as 
as time wears on, you do reflect on more on where you've come from and and how things could have been so different and how they were different for you know many of the people that I grew up with. They they had it far tougher than me in many ways. It took them far longer to get to where they wanted to be, and in some cases, they didn't they didn't achieve all that they could. And I suppose what I do find slightly peculiar, you know, when you when you talk quite openly as I've done about where I'm from and 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 growing up and what that was like, I mean, I do find it kind of slight, I still find it slightly uncomfortable to be honest. But I think it is important to do it. But what I always find really strange is then people will then say. So will suggest that you know perhaps it, it wasn't that bad or you know you're exaggerating I mean it's only the half of it to be honest I mean there's a lot more that I could say and it is a bit it do, it is a bit frustrating sometimes when people kind of question well it can't have been that bad really you think well it, you know it, it was pretty tough at times but it was just what you knew and you got on with it but it's only now when I'm in the privileged position of, you know, being a member of parliament with, you know, a good salary, a stable home, all of that, that you think, wow, yeah, it was, it was tough at times. And why do you feel uncomfortable talking about it? I mean, I've always been, kind of as a kid, I was always quite, quite shy and didn't, you know, was quite a reserved person. But also, I think fundamentally because I came into politics to, to make a change in my community, to make a change in our country, I didn't come into politics to, because of, you know, to make it about me. But I think especially in this job, I've realised that if I'm all in, in order to, to demonstrate why I believe what I believe and the change I would want to make, I do have to kind of open up a bit and talk about who I am. Because to some people, they say, well, that's a complete contradiction. You know, election time, the words Bridget Phillipson will be plastered across your constituency. How yeah. does it feel seeing your name on billboards as a, as a bit of a shy person? Because you're the Labour candidate as well. That's the that's the part that it's yes, it's about you as the individual and your constituents want to understand who you are. They want to know you. They want that relationship with you. And that's, I think, a real strength of our system that you do have that relationship with the people that you represent. But you're the Labour candidate. And that's for me. It's always been about the party, the values, what we do together, because we're a party that believes in collective action. It's not about individuals in that way. And yes, of course, people want to know you, but it's actually how we work together to make change happen. And that's, you know, that was the reason that the Labour Party was founded and, and what we do. Can you ever imagine doing something else for a career? Yeah, I'm not the kind of person who, you know, politics, you know, if, if I were to walk away tomorrow, I'd have a, you know, I could get on with my life. That would be fine. I, you know... I, we did, you know, I did reflect on whether I might lose my seat in 2019. So I had a bit of a chance to consider that. Um, you know, luckily, I, you know, I did, I did secure re-election like many, many of my colleagues in the northeast. Sadly, I'd go and do something completely different. I, I'd always thought about maybe running a bookshop. I'd open a bookshop, maybe do something completely different. Do you know what? I think a lot of people who, and I, and I realise that it's it's no stress compared to having, you know. A, a low-paid job with a terrible boss and things like that. For most people, work well. For a lot of people, work gives them absolutely no satisfaction whatsoever. It's purely a vehicle to pay the bills. Um, I think a lot of people in jobs that bring with it the sort of pressure that politics brings with it often fantasise about running a bookshop in a nice little village. Or well, I often fantasise about um, opening a florist. I just think I can't handle the constant, you know, 
um, pressure to constantly writing stuff and creating new stuff. I think I'd just love to go and just open a florist somewhere, you, you know, near a little bridge in Winchester, near a stream or something like that. I think it's because those sorts of works feel completely different and, and almost like idyllic. I don't know if that's the same reason you choose that. Yeah, it's also because, you know, if I've got if I've got some time to myself, there is nothing I love more than just wandering around a bookshop, spending an hour choosing something, going, you know, going and having a cup of coffee somewhere. It's just those things that I just love doing. If I've got an hour to myself, I could just happily go and wander around a bookshop and yeah. But how many books do you buy that you don't read? I've got I mean I've got a massive stack of books on the bedside cabinet um I, I try and i try and have a book with me in my handbag so if i've got if i'm on the tube or i'm traveling somewhere i'm on a train going out around the country i'll at least kind of try and read for 15 minutes half an hour um because it just takes you away from where you are but also different perspectives you know different different people's experiences it makes you think about the world differently that's that's the beauty and the joy of reading and what sort of books do you go for? Do you go for novels? Do you go for non-fiction? And how do you decide which books to pick? A bit of a mix. So often it's just if I've been given, you know, books for Christmas or, or my, my birthday or whatever. But a mixture of fiction and non-fiction. So at the minute I'm reading a biography of um, a guy called Jack Lawson, who was a, an MP in the North East many, many years ago, who then went into the Lords, quite a notable local figure. So it's his life growing up. Um, initially in Cumbria, then moving across the northeast, started out in the coal mines when he was 10. I mean, a remarkable life. And just, I suppose what that makes me think about is just actually the progress that we've made made as a country and like the civilising impact of particularly of Labour governments. That means, you know, children are at school now at that age. They're not, we're not expecting them to kind of be involved in pretty hard underground labour. Um, but then you must have to offset that with the occasional novel or something to can't all be labor history i do re- i do read quite a lot of labor history i'm afraid but no i do read i do read fiction as well usually just whatever i've been given for for my birthday so i read i, I had my birth- my birthday was in december so i got a few got a few there so i'm plowing through some of them but i'm the kind of person where i can't not finish a book so i have to kind of keep on going even if i'm not enjoying it i just i have to finish it and that just means progress can be a little slow sometimes do you know what I, I maybe it's because i've got a new perspective on life um given the last few months i just think if you're not enjoying a book just don't finish it same with a box set just why are we putting ourselves through all this waste of time see so i i, I do, where it comes to tv if i'm not enjoying it i will just stop but with with reading i feel like you've got i've got to have that sense of completion and i feel like i'm gaining something from it even if i'm not really enjoying enjoying it but yeah I, I will i will very occasionally draw the line i think it's good too i think so there's almost like a superstition with it i can't not finish this i need to know i'm too invested in this story now maybe the ending will be great and if the if the beginning and middle are usually the ending's bad as well yeah but it's it's the same with running like i'm, I'm really into running and i can't not finish on a round number so i have to <laughs> kind of it's the so it's the same kind of ridiculous obsessive kind of approach that I take to some of these things. That it has to, if I'm going to finish on a on a kilometer, I like I have to do exactly five. I can't, you know, if you're at four point eight three, I think I can't finish on four point eight three. I've got to get to the five, or I've got to get to the ten, or whatever it is. But as a politician, surely you can choose the statistics that best use your argument. You could say, well, it's an odd number in kilometers, but in miles, it actually is an even number. 
Well, that's certainly, what the, that's certainly the approach the Tories have taken in recent months to uh, statistics and government data. Not not one I'll be bringing if we win the election. So, if you may be not entirely comfortable talking about your background and stuff, but you, you're happy to talk about books and things. Like, what other? Um, do you watch box sets? What, what what's been like the best box set you've seen recently? I'm yeah, I'm big into box sets and TV in general. The last one I watched, which I thought was brilliant, was um, Kin, the kind of Irish crime drama that's just gone on iPlayer. So they put the second series up during parliamentary recess last week. So I had had a bit more time than normal. So I was able to crack through it in a couple of days. And is that something, because my dad's obsessed with that, but I've not started it yet. Is that something you could watch with your kids? And um, if not, in 2024, what are the things, because I don't have children, but we're a similar age. People say, oh, you know, society's changed. Family don't eat around the dinner table anymore. Um, smartphones and all the other pressures and social media on, on young children. What is modern family life like for you? I'm not sure I'd be recommending watching Kin with uh, with right. the kids, to be honest. But you, you'll you'll see if you uh, you'll if you get into it. I mean, obviously, they it's you know the, the difference you know now is you know they all they all love kind of YouTube and all the stuff that's so readily available, all the stuff that's on you know catch up that just you know wasn't there when I was a kid. Um, but some of some of these things do come back into fashion. So my son's really got into The Simpsons which Brilliant. obviously I watched when I was kind of his age. So it's these things do kind of come back around. Um, yeah. And do you, because I was, I was in the, I walked past a pub the other day and on the telly they were showing gladiators. I thought this is incredible that this show that we used to watch as a family has come back. And Saturday night telly, you've got gladiators, the masked singer. I wonder in a way if, if I'm not sure it was never wholesome, but in a way that there seems to be a, we're sort of going back to big shows and there seems to be a sense of like providing family entertainment. So as, as all these narratives about um, social media and what kids can or can't access on smartphones, indeed, whether they should have smartphones in school, um, equally at the same time, it feels like you can still be a normal family in 2024. Like it's it's not all doom and gloom. No, absolutely. And, and these things are all about a bit of balance. Like there are risks that come of access to material online that you want to make sure you're protecting children from you don't want them spending too long on screens you certainly don't want them using phones when they're in school but there are there is just like so much great content out there so much you can enjoy together and we can't you know we can't turn back the clock in terms of technology we just got to find ways of managing it safely um, but there are like amazing opportunities that come of technology especially in education it's how we harness that. It's how we do it safely. It's about how we do protect children. But there is a lot of potential there. So it isn't all it isn't all negative. It's about how you kind of harness that and make sure it's used effectively. And how much do you worry? Um, you had a bit of a difficult time at school to start with, and then and then it sounds like things got a bit better, you know, as, as people realised that you were going to Oxford and, uh, and things. Um, I guess bullying is another thing that parents worry about and, and ha having had experience of it, how do you, how do you help other parents spot the signs and, and how do you deal with a child that does maybe might not want to talk about it? It is really hard. And you know, what I hear when I'm at schools around the country, just more widely where young people are at the moment, where it comes to their mental health and their wellbeing is a really big worry for, for lots of parents. It's a really big worry for, you know, for school staff as well. And it, it's part of what is driving 
the really big problem that we've got at the moment about children who aren't in school, you know, really scary numbers, you know, one in one in five children persistently absent from school. And some of that is about unaddressed need around mental health. I think especially coming out of the pandemic, lots of young people became more isolated from their friends, from their peers. They missed out on so many really important opportunities and experiences. And it's it's the small things that that might well things that might seem small that children just didn't get you know they didn't when they'd finished their exams well in many cases they hadn't done exams and then they didn't have those rites of passage around the last exam and seeing friends you know I think to my own kids you know playgrounds were closed we couldn't we couldn't go and play in the playground we couldn't have birthday parties they couldn't have their friends around when it was a birthday and we were you know all of that it might not seem like a big thing to people. We asked a lot of children during that time. And then when that was all over, the government said, well, just kind of get back on with it. Well, their lives had changed. They, you know, these were really big moments. And you can't get that time back. Of course you can't. But, you know, I just, I can't, I just cannot understand how the government failed to put in place what was needed after the pandemic to support children after everything that they went through. Do you think there'll be like a long-term effect of that, that, that kids who were denied that rite of passage or uh, couldn't go out and, and play in the same way will uh, somehow be different even into their 30s, 40s and 50s? That, that it'd be almost like, you know, the, people talk about the war, they'll, they'll talk about COVID. I mean, the pandemic will cast a very long shadow over uh, children's futures, over the long-term prosperity of our country. I mean, it's, it's about the impact on the individual but all of the evidence was really clear at the time from the work that Sir Kevin Collins did for the government that actually will take an economic hit as a country too, um, as well as the impact it will have on the individual, on, on the children. And I just, you know, for Rishi Sunak to say that he had maxed out on support that's available, it's just, I, I cannot fathom. Even, even though the Tories come at it from a different kind of way of viewing the world, I just cannot fathom after all of that. He could just say, you know, sorry, nothing, nothing we can do here. You only know, think about the next election. Obviously, it'd be a battle of ideas. It'd be a battle of individuals. There'd be a lot of pressure, specifically on Keir Starmer, and he strikes me as a particularly resilient person. Obviously, that's a word he uses a lot. But are you prepared for the for the white heat of an election campaign and 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 being so um, visible during that and and debates where it will feel like you know any wrong move may cost your side the election? Are, are you? Are you prepared emotionally for, for what's about to hit you? I, I do feel a massive sense of responsibility and really want to get things right. But I'm also really excited about the election campaign. I just cannot wait for the election to be called. I cannot wait to get out there around the country. You know, elections, you know, for, for political nerds, you know, are, are just brilliant. And I think after the last couple of elections we've been through, um, I would, you know, I would happily have a winter election, and even though we had an awful, awful winter election last time, I would much rather the election came sooner. But I will just take whatever is thrown at us just to get on with it, to fight that election and to make the case for Labour government. Because Labour people are absolutely convinced that if, if, if the weather's bad, it's worse for Labour, that a winter election would benefit the Tories because Labour voters are effectively less sticky, that there's 30% of people that will always come out and vote Tory, minimum, and then Labour people are a bit more flaky. Is that still the institutional view? 
I mean, there's always there's always these kind of theories, isn't there? I mean, it's our job to persuade people to go out. I mean, 2019 was miserable on every level, not least the weather. I mean, it was pretty, it was just absolutely relentless kind of misery of getting soaked, freezing all the time, you know, hanging out the kind of door knocking sheets on the radiator before we could, you know, enter the data off them because it would just absolutely soak through. And that was before you get onto the fact that people absolutely hated us and were like shouting at us all the time. But all of that said, we're in a much, we're in a much better place now. And, you know, we've got a really big job ahead of us in persuading people to vote Labour. We will fight for every vote. When you've had so many defeats like we've had, you take nothing for granted. But I would just relish that opportunity to make a case to the country about the change a Labour government will bring and how things will get better for people if we win. And what are the things that you think that ultimately win elections? Obviously, people say it's about the economy and things, and, and, and there's so much falls onto the shoulders, specifically of the leaders. But you think, oh, my God, you know, there'll be dirty tricks and there'll be misinformation and things. And, and given the state of social media these days, God knows what you'll face. I'm sure you worry about those things. But in the grand scheme, on polling day, do you think those things really matter? I think there is. I think what, what's clear at the moment to me is that there is a real mood and appetite for change in the country. We've still got work to do to persuade people that labor that we labor will bring about that change. But I think there is a sense, you know, when, when, when a party has been in government for such a long time as the Conservatives had, I think there is this kind of instinct often amongst the British people that maybe it's time that we look differently and gave other people a chance to improve the country. So it's, you know, it's, it's a re- this is a, you know, a really big year for not just the Labour Party, but for the country. And I think the fundamental question at that next election, whenever it comes, is not only, you know, the change that Labour can can deliver, but really can the country take another five years of the Conservatives? I mean, and ultimately, after 14 years, we've had one party in power for 14 years. What have we got to show for it? Do people feel better off? Do they, you know, look around, you know, their town, their village, their city and think this country is in better shape? Than when the Tories came to power in 2010, and are they better off? Uh, and they aren't. I mean, it's, people are under enormous pressure, and I think the staggering complacency that you hear from the government suggesting that we've never had it so good and isn't everything wonderful is just so at odds with what people are seeing every day. And they can't, they can't fool people. You can't tell people their experience is other than it is. And I think that's where the current government are really kind of running into trouble when they kind of quote figures. You know, isn't it wonderful? Inflation's come down a bit. Well, not not if you're still going to the shop and you can't afford to buy what you were able to buy a year ago. And that is the experience that the people I represent. They just can't manage yeah. with how things are. And inflation being at 4% still means that those prices that are high are still going up by 4%. <laughs> All they've done is slow the rate of the increase to a, to a rate that is double what the Bank of England would want it to be. So it's still... I don't. I think. Well, I'm sure we share views on how the government have handled the economy and their messaging around it. But um, do you get the sense, though, that as fed up as people are with the government and the state of the country, that they are ready to vote for Labour? Well, we've seen in by-elections that people are willing to, you know, make a change to turn their back on how they were voted often for a very long time. So there is that potential that's there. But the only you know, whatever the polls say, the only thing that matters is that election that takes place whenever it comes this year, 
calls are a snapshot of public of the public mood at any given time. They can change. And the only poll that I'm interested in is the one at the next election where people will cast their vote. What's Keir Starmer like as a as a leader from from your perspective, as as a member of the Shadow Cabinet holding one of the most important briefs for any Labour politician? Um how does how does how is policy made? Is it is it made between the two of you? Does his team do some policy development work and pitch it to you and the other way around? Is there like a is there a formula for for deciding what will be in the next manifesto? So we work very closely with with Kia's team in the leader's office and also with party staff. So it's it's kind of a joint endeavour, and that's been how the approach that we took around the mission that we set out around um, opportunity and how we break down barriers that people face in our country. Kia is a very focused, determined, driven person who will do everything it takes to make sure that Labour's in the best possible position going into that election. But the side that people often don't always see either is he is a warm, generous, funny and very supportive person. And he, you know, he is genuine. He wants, he is a great, he's a great boss. He wants us all to to work together as a team to succeed. And he's incredibly supportive. And you, you do feel part of a team. You feel part of his team. And you want to do your best, not just for the party, for the country, but, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing, doing the best you can for your boss as well. Seems to have a different type of ego to a lot of political leaders. It doesn't have the same um, vanity that Corbyn had, um, or or many of um, his opponents on the other side of the House of Commons. He, it's not that he's ego free, because that would be impossible given the, the jobs that he's done. But he seems to have a, a, a gentler relationship with with his ego than than a lot of political leaders. He's determined and he's resolute, and he knows who he is. Like. You know, he he is very clear in his own mind about what he believes, who he is and what he wants to do. But he's very laid back, doesn't take himself too seriously um, and is just a very warm and supportive person. So we'll have an election at some point this year. Obviously, you dream of a Labour government. Labour people are so scarred by 1992. And to younger people listening to this, that will sound like it was almost wartime it wasn't that long ago and and labor were ahead in the polls and they had a, a charismatic leader who was a great orator um and a and a government that was absolutely on the ropes and and yet they didn't win and do you get the sense that that institutional fear is still there that there is something in the labor movement widely that despite everything the by-elections the polls the popularity of Keir Starmer versus that of Rishi Sunak and every other indicator that for, that for some reason they will fall short? And, and and do they have a clear view of maybe what those reasons might be? We are, all of us in the Labour Party, scarred by that experience in 92. I mean, I don't remember it quite so well. I was a kid then, but I do remember we were a Labour family. And I remember going upstairs, I was sent up to bed, and my mum saying, you know, it looks like, looks like we're going to get a Labour government by the time you wake up in the morning. And I came downstairs and she was absolutely devastated because we'd, we'd lost that election. And you are... You are scarred by it, but you can't allow it to inhibit what you know you can achieve into the future. And Labour wins when we face the future, when we're positive and optimistic about our country, about what we can do, about what we can achieve together. So no complacency. You have to be focused on the potential for risk, you know, thinking about thinking ahead about all of the pitfalls. You've got to have a confidence that you can win that you've got the best set of ideas and the right priorities for the country. And I am convinced that Labour better understands, that we better understand the mood of the public, what needs to change and how we can make that happen. 
but we've still, particularly in those target seats, and that's where the election will be lost or won, we've got to make sure that we're connecting with those voters uh, in our target seats. And we've got some brilliant candidates now right across the country who are doing that every week, you know, the kind of hard grind of knocking on doors, delivering leaflets, speaking to voters. But it's that national message as well, and that will be so crucial uh, when the election comes. When you were younger, you, you, your mum may have tried to nudge you towards a different career in television and you're an extra in Biker Grove, which for people of our generation is like the show that obviously Anton launched Anton Deck as PJ and Duncan and was such a funny... Um, people remember specific um, uh, scenes from Biker Grove very vividly. So do you, is there any like visual record? Do you have still on tape or, or any photos of you on the show? I don't think I have it. So I... I was an extra a couple of times. So I, I did a Saturday morning drama class at a local community centre, which my mum had sent us along to to try and get me to be a bit less shy. And it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. And they had a relationship with the programme. They regularly sent extras to the programme and also sent people to audition for the programme. Sadly, I never auditioned and never got to be a... Never had that opportunity to be, uh, to be a, a, a brilliant actress. But I did get to be an extra on a number of occasions and it was really exciting. I mean, Biker Girl was just such a, you know, such a brilliant programme and... You know, I'd, I'd watched it for years, um, but I, I, I'm sure that there is some footage somewhere of me. On one occasion, I was walking into school. This took about, you know, takes about half a day to record what is about 30 seconds worth of film. And then on another occasion, hanging around outside a music venue in Newcastle where a band were arriving and we were kind of an excited group of screaming girls, basically. Uh, and again, that took about half a day to film um, and, you know, lasted about 30 seconds on screen. And have you, have you ever reached out to Anton Deck and said, look, we were all on Biker Grove together. Why not, why not come and do some publicity for the Labour Party? Well, you've, you've, you've given me an idea. But actually, in Sunderland at the moment, we've got a really exciting development that might take place that would involve um, some film studios, like a major investment in film studios and a, and a local, local company, well, with one local figurehead who is doing it, that is actually about creating that next generation of programmes and, and TV uh, and films that would be done in Sunderland with this, you know, could create thousands of jobs, brilliant opportunity. So I think it is, you know, there is such enormous potential around creative industries. And there's a really big challenge around the fact that increasingly, I would say, whether it's especially in performing arts, it is becoming the preserve of people who were privately educated. Um, and we need more opportunities for working class musicians and actors and so on to, to kind of come through. And that's where the likes of Biker Grove was so brilliant. You know, it gave give kids from the northeast the chance to you know become become film stars tv stars um didn't quite work out for me but i gave it a shot well the future you never know you're still young so if this big film development happens you could have a glittering career as a politician then like glenda jackson could go back into the industry maybe one day win an oscar I might be able to help them out with around the need for um skills reform in our country if we win the election to make sure that we've got more more people that um I've got the skills to work in the industry. And that's what, again, what is brilliant about it. It's not just the people who are on screen. It's, you know, the electricians, the hair people, makeup. There's loads of really good jobs in that kind of industry. And that's what, you know, I'll, I'll do that bit of things. I'll, that, that bit, I'll make it easier to, for people to train and upskill and to get an apprenticeship. Bridget, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. There you go. It's it's really interesting uh, talking to Labour people at the moment 
because there is that mix of excitement about the possibility that the election brings because they want to change the country for the better. Obviously, there's the excitement you might actually win after so many defeats, um, but the opportunity that that, that would afford them, um, but also trying to temper that, really trying to dampen that. And obviously, as someone who remembers 1997 and then, and then worked in politics, that 92 and 97 are, are such big elections in the minds of Labour people. And I guess the last two will, will become that as well. Um, that 1992, there was so much confidence that they would win, then they don't. And then, in a way, going into 1997, they just couldn't believe they were about to win, and then they won big. And you can tell that <laughs> Labour people, are, in a way, don't know how to feel. They're excited about the next election, but they're like, oh, my God, you know, you don't want to get too excited and then not win, i.e. 1992. Um, but you want to kind of enjoy the election in the same way that they might have done in 1997. But of course, a lot of that is retrofitted. They went into that election paranoid. And then um, it's only, I think, sometimes in retrospect that people look back and go, oh, of course, we're always going to win. You know, so who knows how people will talk about the next election after it. But it's going to be a fascinating year. But it always is. Politics is always interesting and always stimulating. You know, even when it's the last few years, I think so many of us have found it absolutely infuriating and disheartening. There's still enough in it. There are still enough people in there on all sides that give you that that grain of hope or, or that reason to stay interested. So um, what a year, great year it's going to be. It's great to be um, back making these. Live shows will return at the Duchess Theatre um, as soon as I can stand unaided and um, walk and... Um, you know, these podcasts are so stimulating to make, but after the last one with Lee Anderson, and I'm sure after this one, I did need to just lie down for a bit. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to go into too much detail about um, the effect of the surgery, but basically I, I do have to lie down for large parts of the day because if I sit down for too long or if I stand, um, it, it's exhausting. And um, there's still an amount of neuropathic pain and discomfort as a result of the surgery. So um, sometimes... As, you, as you'll know, if you're coming back from big surgery or, or, or something like that, you think, oh, well, I'm back. I, I can do everything. And um, sometimes you forget that, no, actually, you can do things for a small amount of time and, um, and then you do need to rest. So anyway, go to too much detail about <laughs> recovering, but it's just so good to be back. And the main reason it's good to be back is, is talking to politicians and, and picking their brains and, and getting a sense of them as people. So um, anyway, I waffled enough at the start and I waffled in too much at the end. Um, uh, please share this far and wide. Uh, leave a five star written review if your platform allows you to. And um, I'll be back with a fresh episode uh, next week. So thank you for downloading this. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as, as much as I've enjoyed making it. And I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.